I remember as a teenager being captivated by the story of Joni or Johnny Erickson Tata, an American woman who at 17 years old, as a teenager like I was as I was reading the story, had dived into a lake and she had misjudged the depth of the water and she sustained a fracture of her neck and she became a tetraplegic, paralysed from her neck down. Some of you will have read this book too. And I remember reading her story, thinking through the details of the account and wondering about the rescue. How long was she lying face down in the water before they pulled her out? You know, those little funny details which uh, seemed to matter at the time. Marvelling that she learned to paint with her mouth, with a um, paintbrush in her mouth. Uh, countless times wondering what it would be like to be in her shoes. And I came across her story again the other day in a book by Tim Keller when he was talking about the hope that she, Joni, had found in the resurrection and how that had given her strength to get through those first extremely difficult few years as she adjusted to life as a severely disabled person. My teenage self had certainly never thought about that part of the story. And on Easter Sunday, we remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. At the marvel of him raising to life and the defeat of death, what does the resurrection part of the story actually mean for us here and now? How does the resurrection actually give us a tangible hope for our life in this world, many times full of struggle and pain? Is the resurrection only about hope for the future, about life after death, or can it actually impact our lives here and now? And what we see from scripture is that absolutely, yes, the resurrection does and should impact us here and now, as well as giving us a hope for the future. Why? Because the resurrected Jesus shows us what the kingdom of God is like, which is full of hope and life for us here and now. And this is actually far different to the kingdom that the world around us is. And this is the story we're going to unpack this morning. We're going to unpack this resurrection story. And as we do, we're going to think about two kingdoms by asking... Three questions. I hope there's not too much maths for you. This, these are not random questions. For those of us, those of you who have been journeying with us through Mark's Gospel last year, we approached each passage uh, each week by asking three things. And the three questions were, who was Jesus? What did he do? And what does he call us to do as his disciples or as his followers? So each, pas- each passage that we looked at in Mark, we asked these three questions of that particular text. And this helped us to see what Jesus' mission on earth was and how we're impacted and how we should be involved. So using those same three questions, what does this passage today, one of the resurrection accounts, tell us about who Jesus was? Well, firstly, we see that he's a resurrected body. Not a completely different body, but a resurrected one, one that is still recognisable to the disciples. Jesus asked them in verse 33, Why are you troubled? and Why do doubts raise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. That is, I, myself. Jesus was still physically recognisable. Pointing to his scars on his hands and his feet would have left no doubt in the minds of the disciples that it was actually Jesus. Because remember, they'd witnessed him being tortured and crucified on the cross just a few days earlier. Now, to be honest, I'm sure I would have been quite troubled at the appearance of Jesus. After having witnessed someone tortured and murdered, you don't expect to see them turn back up. And it must have been very unnerving for the disciples. They must have been questioning their own sanity. Did I eat some hallucinogenic mushrooms for breakfast? Was this a ghost? But once Jesus spoke to them, 
And he showed them his hands and his feet. And then he ate something. It must have begun to settle in their minds that actually, yes, this is the risen Jesus with them. And although they were still full of shock, they became full of joy in his presence. Full of joy that their Jesus was back with them. We see in verse 41 here, Luke tells us they were full of joy and amazement. Amazement. So firstly, Jesus was recognisable. Secondly, he was still doing ordinary things, like eating. He asked for food when they gave him a, and they gave him a fish. And we read in John's Gospel about that wonderful time that he cooked them breakfast on the beach. Eating is an ordinary part of life, and the resurrected Jesus eats too. Thirdly, he was in some ways the same, but he was also extraordinarily dif- different. He just appeared to them as they were standing around talking. He had just vanished from the company of some of them at the meal after the Emmaus Road account, which has just happened before this passage. Um, And then he just appeared with them. In John's Gospel, we read that actually the disciples were gathered in a room together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus just appears to them. It appears walls and gravity and locked doors are no problem for Jesus and his resurrected body. Jesus is still recognisable, he's still doing ordinary things, yet he is very, very different. He is no longer held by the laws of physics and other differences that we could unpack. He is the first of the new creation. He is the first of the new humanity. He is the new Adam of the people of God after the resurrection. And he shows us what we will be like in the life to come after we have been resurrected from the dead. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, we don't know an awful lot about life after death. The Bible doesn't give us that many specific details about heaven, but it is clear that our bodies will be resurrected. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, meaning our earthly bodies here, the body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. And as the message translates it, um, with the same metaphor of a seed sown, the seed sown is natural, the seed grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body, but what a difference from when it goes down in physical mortality when it is raised up in spiritual immortality. I love that. So as Jesus shows us, he is the firstborn of the new creation, which we too are going to be part of after we have been resurrected like him. We will still be recognisable to one another. We'll still participate in ordinary things. But we will also be extraordinarily different. We will no longer be marked by pain or suffering. We will eat, but not because we're hungry. We'll eat because of the pure pleasure of eating with others and tasting those beautiful foods. And we'll be full of joy because we will be in God's, or Jesus' intimate presence. Wouldn't that be wonderful? This answers in part our second question about what is Jesus doing. He is showing us what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God, once all death and fear and pain is gone, what it will be like in that new kingdom. This is what Johnny saw, which gave her tremendous courage as a life as for her life as a tetraplegic, and especially during the days that she was adjusting to life in a wheelchair. Now, during her recovery, she would still go to church in her wheelchair, and she found at a certain point in her church's liturgy every Sunday, the priest would call everyone to kneel, and of course it became very obvious that she couldn't kneel, and she was the only one 
sitting there while everyone else was flat on the floor. And it just drove home to her the fact that she was stuck in a wheelchair. And once she was at a convention when the speaker urged everyone to get on their knees and pray, and everyone did, except her, and she writes about that moment, with everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out, and I couldn't stop the tears. But it wasn't because of self-pity that she explains. She was crying because of the sight of hundreds of people on their knees before God. And it was so beautiful, it was a picture of heaven. And she continued weeping at her next thought. She writes, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, to dance, kick, and do acrobatics. And sometimes, and sometime before the guests are called into the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. I, with shriveled, bent hands, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Only in the gospel of Jesus do we find such enormous hope to live. And this is another part of our answer to our second question. Jesus came in his resurrected body to give us hope, not only for the life to come, but here and now. And this hope wasn't just something that Joni found that she looked forward to in the day after she, after she died, but it gave her hope for here and now as a tetraplegic. And Jesus gives us hope, and because of that, we have peace. What's the first thing he says to the disciples? Peace be with you. In John's account, he says it twice. And when he showed himself later to Thomas, the first thing he said to him was, Peace be with you. As he was with them, the disciples moved from a place of fear and grief and freaked out and what the heck's happened. We thought this guy we were leading, we were following, was this awesome saviour. What's gone wrong? It's a nightmare. They moved from that place to a place of joy and amazement. A newfound hope. This joy was not a short-lived thing either. We know that they were full of joy and praising God after he went back to heaven. The joy and hope was what sustained them through their own lives as they suffered at the hands of the Romans at the end of their own lives and were many, killed, many were killed in horrific ways. If this is really true then, if Jesus was resurrected and brings hope and joy to the people who saw him, which is, were many, as we were told in Scripture, why do so many people today not believe? Why do, not, why do many not believe back then and why do many today? Why, why are we not totally full and packed with people here? Why do we still need apologetics and convincing arguments about the resurrection? Why do most people believe Easter simply about another public holiday in which we eat chocolate and celebrate with bunnies and eggs? Bunnies never lay eggs. Why are many of us Christians not full of joy and deep celebration always, even at Easter? Why do many of us still feel hopeless at times? I think, firstly, we can feel hopeless because, let's be honest, we've been waiting 2,000 years for him to come back. Uh, and I'm sure many of us have asked ourselves, was the re resurrection story too good to be true? When's he going to come back and put everything right like he promised and resurrect us into those new bodies? When, why do we get so tired and despondent waiting for the, all the redemption that our world still awaits? But the underlying reason we feel this hopelessness at times, and it causes us to wonder if God has forgotten us or the promise to return, 
It's because we live in a world where there is still a very large lie afoot. Much of us live our lives influenced to various degrees by this lie. And this lie has actually been around since the beginning of humanity. A seductive lie that was first fed to Adam and Eve. We need to tell the story of two kingdoms to understand the lie and its implications and how we can live free of that. Adam and Eve, as you know, were born into a kingdom, God's kingdom, where he was present with them. As present as you and I are in this room to each other. But even more so, we read in Genesis, they walked and talked with the Lord. They had no fear of him. The Lord was exceedingly generous. They lacked or desired for nothing. He was involved, he even involved them in his work of bringing order to the place called Eden. But in the midst of that, they were offered a lie by the devil. God's enemy promised them that they would live even better lives if they were on their own, if they were their own gods. If they ate the forbidden fruit, they could be like gods themselves. And what do gods do? They build kingdoms. They build their own kingdoms. And Adam and Eve began to doubt the generosity, the goodness and extravagant love of God. Instead, they believed the lie of the snake. They ate the fruit, chose to go their own way, and they chose to build their own kingdom. And ever since, have faced death and destruction. Exactly what the Lord warned them would happen if they didn't trust him. And humanity has been no different ever since. Ever since and even now, we continue to want to be our own gods, don't we? We want to build our own kingdoms rather than submit to the kingdom of God. We doubt the goodness, the generosity, and the extravagant love of God. We think we can do things better on our own. Even those of us who call Jesus our Lord and Saviour have a tendency to stray and attempt to do things on our own. Sometimes Jesus is actually the last resort. This is the same lie that tells us all, perhaps it was just a nice story, but it was too good to be true. The resurrection is a hoax. It doesn't really happen. And JB enlightens our world without God, our world will be create our own kingdoms as building with a Lego set. With a Lego set, we can create whatever we want. We can add bits here, we can take bits off there, and if everyone is adding a wheel and a lever, then you should add a wheel and a lever. When it becomes unfashionable to have that wheel and lever, you better remove it fast. The rules and trends are constantly changing. Age changes the rule. Stages of life and cultural acceptance changes the rules. And yet at the same time, we're told this is the age of self. You can be whatever you want to be. You can be whoever you want to be. You work it out. You're in charge of your own destiny. Anything is possible. You need to be unique, but you also need to fit in. Don't be too different. The kingdom of this world says, find yourself. But as many will have observed, it's very difficult to find ourselves. And often when we think we find ourselves or created ourselves to be the version that we like best, the rules change and we lose ourselves again. To live in this kingdom is incredibly anxiety-inducing. Many are having identity crises, which leads to more anxiety, suicidal thoughts and multi-mental health issues, which are exploding in their rates at the moment. And in this kingdom, nothing lasts. We can spend our whole lives constructing our kingdoms. And what happens when we breathe our last breath? It all turns to dust. Millions of people have lived and died and are not remembered. And there's been a fascination with ruins in the last decade or so, um, especially the interest in images of abandoned buildings has exploded with the phenomenon la la uh, sorry, labelled as ruin porn. Uh, the term ruin lust has been around for a very long time, though. 
the German word for an obsession with the crumbling and the dilapidated. The Tate Museum in London had an exhibition in 2014 to do with this ruin lust, and the curator made a comment. There's a real mixture of emotions that includes horror, nostalgia, regret, but also kind of a thrill and a sort of sublime excitement. Some of us will have felt those when we went to visit ruins uh, overseas. We don't have many ruins in New Zealand, do we? In 1748, when this Roman city of Pompeii was excavated, it became a very popular site for artists just to go and to sit and paint. The city that was buried in ash after Mount Eusebius erupted is still a very popular site to visit, and Graham and I uh, visited it when we were in Italy several years ago. We also got horrendously ripped off, so it's a bit of a black memory in our minds, but anyway. <laughs> and one journalist commented about the rise of art in this location. It's a theme in the arts and literature of that period that the destruction of the past is a warning from history about what might happen. It speaks to our unease about being modern, that no matter how modern we are, no matter how much progress we make, it will all come to an end. It will all fall away like the civilizations of Greece and Rome. When we try and create ourselves, it doesn't last. The kingdom of this world will not last. It's not actually a, a might, but it's a certainty, and scripture tells us that. But what will last is the other kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus shows us here in this resurrection. Jesus is still alive in the life after death. Death did not have the final say. Jesus and we too, and all of us who have chosen to submit to the kingdom of God as his children, as we declare him to be our Lord and Saviour, we will be resurrected and we will last forever. Instead of a Lego set, living in the kingdom of God is like an art restoration project. In this metaphor, we are all flawed art masterpieces. Our purpose in life is to submit to the great artist, allowing him to restore us, to bring, us, bring out our colours and our beauty that are actually already there. Put them put, by there, put there by him, but marred by sin. And as we become more like him, as we spend time with him and as we are restored back to the beauty of the masterpiece that we were created to be by God. And the final restoration is completed at the resurrection. And in this kingdom, we do not have to strive to find ourselves. We let ourselves be found by him. In this kingdom, we do not have to construct our own identity. We make ourselves, we don't have to make ourselves according to the cultural trends. We are given our identity by God. We are the children of God, loved, treasured, accepted. Value placed on us so high, not based on what we do or what we've achieved or what we look like, but because of who we are. Value demonstrated by the very God who created us, dying in our place. Value demonstrated by God who paid our debts. Value demonstrated by God drinking the cup of wrath, taking the death sentence in our place. Because we believe the lie rather than the generosity and the goodness of God. While we were still sinners, he died for us. It's right here in verse 46. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. On Resurrection Sunday, we remember that he not only died for us, but he was also raised to life to give us the hope for the here and the now, not just for the future. When we accept the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we are that masterpiece. 
being restored, and we will last forever. We are no longer condemned, but we are restored, made whole in him. And this brings us peace, the only life-giving kingdom to ever be part of. In the kingdom of this world, we are left alone, left to figure things out by ourselves, but not in the kingdom of God. God is with us. As Tyler Staten said in the Lectio 365 this week, this is demonstrated by the whole of Jesus' life. When Jesus was born, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. Born with us. Walked with us. Talked with us. Lived with us. Suffered and suffers with us. The creator God dying at the hands of his own creation. This is the great scandal and the great comfort of God, of Jesus. Only Christianity gives us a God who is with us. Only Christianity gives us a God with scars. Our last question to answer is, what does he call us to do? Our call is to believe in Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, and to live in the hope that he has given us. Examine how much you believe in that future and that hope. How real is it to you? Will you continue to believe the lie? Or will you believe in the resurrected Jesus and all that means? As I said at the beginning, Scripture tells us the resurrection should powerfully impact our lives here and now, not just as a hope for the future. Tim Keller helps us understand our belief in the resurrection of Jesus and how our own future resurrection should actually impact our daily lives here and now. This is the last quote for you. The extent of that future is real to you. The extent that that future is real to you will will change everything about how you live in the present. For example, why is it so hard to face suffering? Why is it so hard to face disability and disease? Why is it so hard to do the right thing if you know it is going to cost you money, reputation, and maybe even your own life? Why is it so hard to face your own death or the death of loved ones? It's so hard because we think this broken world is the only world we'll ever have. It's easy to feel as if money is the only wealth we'll ever have, as if this body is the only body we'll ever have. But if Jesus is risen, then your future is so much more beautiful and so much more certain than that. The lie around us says this is all there is. The gospel says something totally different. And this is what Johnny grasped and was able to live a life that she not only got through, but God has developed a massive ministry through her and has touched and reached many, many people. Many people have found faith through her story and her hope that she had in the Lord. And as we close, I'm going to leave you with a picture of heaven as described by C.S. Lewis in his masterpiece, Last Battle. Who's read Last Battle? The children and the friends have come to a new Narnia, which is Lewis's metaphor of heaven. And he writes this. It is as hard to explain how the sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you about how the fruits of that country tasted. Perhaps you'll get some idea of it if you think of it like this. Imagine you've been in a room where there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay or the sea or the green valley, which wound away through the mountains. And as you turned away from the window, you caught sight of that all over again in the mirror behind you. In the valley, which was in one sense just the same as the real ones, yet in, somehow it looks different. It's deeper. It's more wonderful. More like places in a story. 
and a story you've never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looks a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, and everyone else began to run. And to their astonishment, found they could keep up with him. Even Puzzle, the short-legged, and sorry, even little Puzzle and short-legged Poggin, the dwarf, the air flew in their faces as if they were driving a fast car without a windscreen. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. The resurrected Jesus, the first of the new creation, showed us this in the new life. And in our resurrected bodies, we will run and not grow faint. We will walk and not be weary. We will live life in the fullest of colours. We will have the deepest joy that only we can imagine. Every tear will have been wiped from our eyes. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. The old order has passed away. What a future to give us hope and strength for now. Let's pray. Jesus. In this in-between time of waiting, of knowing Christ has been raised to life, but still waiting for the resurrection, we, we sometimes struggle. We are tempted to believe that the lie, that this life is all there is, that you are not good, or we at least live our lives like that. And Lord, help us to see that the true hope of your resurrection brings to our lives here and now. Lord, we lay down our kingdom building and we ask as you taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And I'd invite you to just take a moment now to bring to the Lord the parts of our lives where we are struggling to have hope, where we are still waiting for resurrection and restoration. And let's just bring them to the Lord in silent prayer. Jesus, we look unflinchingly at the places, places of pain where the resurrection victory has not yet come. And we ask that you will help us await that resurrection with hope. Taking up the prayer of David in Psalm 27, I remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Help us to submit to you as a flawed masterpiece, allowing you to restore us. Bringing out the beautiful colours that you put here in the first place. Help us to remember the age to come when everything will be made right, as you promise. Amen.